We're doing something a little bit different today. We're going to be covering the filmography of a prized American director, Brian De Palma. And the guest this evening is Nick Oldershaw of the Coward Hour podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. I'm excited to do this. We've got quite quite a lot of movies to get through today. And uh, Hans, I think you've watched like three of them. <laughs> I've watched four of them, yeah. And you, you, you probably picked the worst ones to watch. <laughs> All the bad, most of the bad ones. Dude, every, uh, yeah. I really, go on. I was going to say, every time I listen, every time I catch an episode of movies, I feel like Hans either like doesn't finish the movie or just like straight up didn't watch it. <laughs> yeah. He falls asleep typically about midway through the film. It's too much for him. I was finishing watching Blowout uh, half an hour ago, and I fell asleep on the last twenty minutes. Wow. So I had to rewatch wow. when I fell when I woke up. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a tired old man. <laughs> but uh, but you got through Snake Eyes, you got through Raising Cain, and you got through Mission to Mars, and uh, Blowout. Yeah. And it, well, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did finish it. I saw the ending. Okay. Which, yeah. Yeah. Some great great blue screen at the end of that movie. Oh, the fireworks! Yeah, <laughs> iconic. Um, so we're we're going to start, I guess, uh, at the beginning, right? And uh, we'll, we'll we'll probably be skipping over his collaborations with Robert De Niro, like uh, what, what was it, High Mom and High Mom I'm, Part Two, the wedding, or there's the movie's called. It's the wedding party. I want to say it's the wedding party and High Mom. I actually watched um, a little bit of High Mom, and. It actually wasn't, it's not as bad as the wedding one. I watched a little bit of that too. They were both free on Prime or one was on Tubi or something. Um, but Hi Mom is actually like, I would actually say like what I saw, I'm like, oh, this seems like it might be worth watching. It's kind of funny. But it was just weird, especially for, for what you're used to seeing from De Palma. It was, it was like all improv. It's very bizarre. Yeah. Uh, I, I typically dismiss like the earliest films in any director from, the mid 20th century's uh, filmography, because it, it, te- it, you know, typically it feels like they take three or four films before they really start to get going. Like Stanley Kubrick had uh, fear and desire was his first film. And then he did killer's kiss. And then he wound up doing the killing afterward. And people don't really acknowledge the first two. Uh, Spielberg is another one like that, where what do you have? Duel that, that truck movie. Yeah. Where, uh, it was essentially like jaws, but on the road, it was like uh, <laughs> maximum overdrive or something. Uh, and you know, every director has those early films that you don't really pay much mind to. And I think for a lot of people, his career kind of begins with Carrie. Although did sisters predate that movie? Yeah. Sisters predates Carrie. So does, um, Phantom of the Paradise. I guess Phantom of the Paradise wasn't as big of a success. Phantom of the Paradise is probably technically the first one. Um, but go on. Uh, yeah, well, I think sisters, I think the movie that got, him the most notoriety i feel like was obsession um hmm. and that might have and and the fury i think the fury was kind of well i don't know if the fury was the fury was after carrie so anyway the fury that was uh kirk douglas and john cassavetes in some weird like spiritual sci-fi film wasn't it yeah i wish i wish i made time to see that i love both of those guys and uh but i you know i i, t- I, I looked at the reviews for it and it, it it didn't seem to have much praise which is even weird nowadays because there's so much nostalgia for these older horror films and schlocky B-movies where you would think that maybe uh, it would be brought up some as a result of that. But no, it seems like everything I've read about that has been almost universally negative. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a really long time. And I, I, I might even be getting it confused with uh, Firestarter. I know that I've seen parts of it. 
Um, Fire starters with uh, George C. Scott. He's he. I've been on a kick of George C. Scott films recently with uh, the Changeling and Exorcist Three, and I watched the remake of uh, Twelve Angry Men that William Friedkin did for HBO. He's great. Yeah. He, he he doesn't get old. But um, you seen you seen Hardcore? Ah, Hardcore is the best. I love Hardcore. Paul Schrader, eighties uh, Paul Schrader especially, <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, man. He's awesome. Nothing but hits. I would say, like from like, and not to get not to go off on a tangent, but like, yeah, like he might he might be my favorite American director, like of the new Hollywood era. Paul, he's a fucking beast. Definitely. So, what what is the story with Sisters? Because I didn't wind up making time to see this movie, and I know Hans didn't. So, uh it's. I mean, it's it's cool. It's just like I mean, it's what De Palma is really good at. It's just like basically like a very heightened riff on Hitchcock. Obsession's kind of the same thing. But the, mm-hmm. but the thing in Sisters is, like, he uses uh, split screen in a way where you'll see two, like, there's a really interesting sequence in the beginning where this woman witnesses a murder from across the street, uh, and she calls the police, and so this, and then the screen splits in two, and you see in real time her taking the police over to the apartment, insisting that they go up, and then uh, two characters, like, cleaning up the murder, like, concurrently, which mm-hmm. is really, and, and it's, it is just kind of like a very, it's like very, De Palma is really interesting, because, like, his films will they'll like switch from having a relatively grounded tone to just like going into like, you know, like a very heightened reality. And sisters does that super well, like in a really interesting way at the end, where like the last 20 minutes of the movie, um, when, uh, William Finley, who's also in Phantom of the Paradise, he's performing like hypnotherapy on, uh, these two women. And the film becomes this like surrealist black and white, like dream nightmare thing. That's a total, it's like, it's a total digression from like what the plot of the movie has been thus far. And I don't even know if it's like necessarily, it's just really interesting. Like, like on paper, I think that it could actually be really bad and like hurt the movie. If he wasn't, if it wasn't so visually interesting. Yeah. What you were describing kind of sounds like, I feel like there's a scene where those tactics are employed with the split screen in blowout. I mean, Hans, yeah. you, you watched it most recently. Is that correct? Yeah, there, there's some scenes where, uh, especially when he's listening to the audio, uh, there's parts where they use, uh, in the background, you can see the action of the car and you see Travolta in a profile. Uh, so they do use a lot of, well, blue screen, I'm assuming it is, uh, and just a lot of sp- split screen too, uh, in a very interesting way. There's a scene where uh, the news are on TV and then the, the screen is split with Travolta doing something else. Uh that's something that I that I I guess I wasn't expecting just because I wasn't entirely familiar with his work. Uh, but all of the movies that I saw, at least visually speaking, or at least uh, camera wise, were really interesting to watch. Uh, the stories were very over the top, and I feel like uh, well, like what Nick said, that it's like a heightened reality of uh, uh, these characters that are a little bit over the top, but not enough to become entirely comedic. Um, but the the camera work was consistently interesting and was what kept me engaged through most of them, uh, especially in something like Snake Eyes. I, mean, I know I'm jumping ahead, but uh, that one has a lot of really interesting um, camera movements and camera decisions that kept me more interested in what the story was actually about because uh, I I mean, the, the story is interesting in the movie, but the use of POV and the use of split screen and uh, just the way that that movie is shot was really interesting. And I, I just wasn't familiar with, with his work and uh, yeah, that, that he, he did use that on, on blowout and, and uh, it kept me, yeah, really 
paying attention to the movie, which is which is really difficult for me, as you as you know. <laughs> yeah, now, I mean, not not to get too far ahead, but Snake Eyes, I think, survives as a film just because he's the director. Because that could have easily been done by somebody like Joel Schumacher in nineteen ninety eight or nine or whenever it came out, and have been a totally forgettable little action crime thriller piece. But because you have De Palma's vision guiding that story, and he's got a better understanding of visual storytelling, I think, better than maybe any other American filmmaker. And that uh, performance, it, that performance yeah. from Nicolas Cage was amazing. <laughs> I oh, just yeah, didn't get enough yeah. of and it. And his just, wardrobe, just, his wardrobe is wonderful yeah. as well. But uh, again, we got we to stick to the 70s for right now. So Phantom of the Paradise is really the movie that I think starts to build him some acclaim. It's very Rocky Horror-esque and over-the-top in nature. Now, you tried watching that, and you got, got nauseous over the yeah. musical cues or, or, or what have you. I'm just, I'm just really not into musicals at all, and after the second or third song, I, I just couldn't keep going. Uh, I, I know that uh, it's a movie that's revered, uh, and that everyone likes, but I just, I guess I just didn't give it enough of a chance. And it was the first one that I, I started watching and, uh, yeah, I turned it off within 20 minutes. So I, I, I don't really have much of an opinion on it. There's so much interesting style and iconography within that film though, that I essentially had like a similar opinion to you when I looked at it. Cause I didn't pick that movie to put on because I knew it was a musical and it seemed right. very flamboyant and over the top, <laughs> but, uh, about 30 minutes in, it, it became one of my favorite films of the 70s. and it, One of my favorite De Palma films, uh, definitely. Uh, Nick, what, what do you think of uh, Phantom of the Paradise? I really, I mean, I really like it. It, it predates uh, Rocky Horror, actually. Um, oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, it does. Because I want to say Rocky Horror, Rocky Horror is like 75 and Paradise is like 72 or 73. Maybe 70. I know that it came before it. But... Um, I like that movie a lot. A lot of that, it's funny, like a lot of the iconography, like uh, um, Leech's fucking helmet or whatever, like you see that in a lot of like, I don't know if you guys watch a lot of anime, but like that shows up in like Berserk and like fucking uh, Gundam. Well, it's just so, like, just aesthetically that movie, I think that movie also kind of survives on like aesthetics alone for me. Well, because what else yeah. are you watching it for, you know? Yeah. Do you think oh. it's uh, De Palma at his most over the top? No, I think that's Raising Kane. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I, I I would say I think visually though it's it, it's uh, definitely the most out there of his films. Raising Kane, I thought well, you know when I when I put that movie on, I thought I was in for like a more serious film than I wound up getting, and it wound up I, it, that movie reminded me a whole lot of uh, the Dark Half with uh, what's his name Timothy Hutton. Yeah, I I thought it was in for a Hallmark style movie. At the beginning, for the first ten-ish minutes, yeah. when the whole you know when the whole uh, present thing that she's hiding and she might be having an affair, but she might not. That we don't know. It felt very, at least for me, it felt very hallmarky at first. And then as soon as John Lithgow came on screen, I was like, oh, okay, so this is this is what's going to happen now. All right. Well, Raising Kane is weird because, like, I mean, there are some people who defend Raising Kane as like it's De Palma, like knowingly making fun of himself. I don't, I don't think that that's the case. But there, are, the choices in it are like even in that first scene where, uh, you know, he like he knocks the woman out with the fucking um, with the dust or whatever, and it keeps cutting to those joggers who are and it, and it cuts like way too many times. Like like yeah. like 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 you would cut that way if you were trying 
to do something funny. And there's a, mm-hmm. there's a lot of shit like that in Raising Cain where it's like, there's one too many dream sequences. Like, the, you know, the twist of like the, the, like the very last shot of John Lithgow, like dressed up as a woman. It's like, it feels yeah. like he's making fun of Dress to Kill. Yeah. Um, well, so, the, the, se- the sex in the fucking park. Right. Where they're like, yeah. when he he's like touching her and she's moaning like his feet inside of her and he's barely touching her. Uh, and, and how that repeats throughout the movie because they show it through like different angles and whatnot. Uh, yeah, it, it has a lot of, I, I think it's just comedic elements that are not, I don't think they were on purpose at all. I think it's just, just from the performances and how crazy the story was. But it worked. I, I mean, I, I was entertained mostly because I love John Lithgow and I, I just love the fact that he just goes all out on it, just goes completely crazy with his performance. Yeah, but his performance like belongs in like a children's movie, and like like, like it's, <laughs> it is so weird that he's doing that that kind of shit in like an R-rated like sex thriller or whatever. It's not a sex thriller. The whole story behind Raising Cain is kind of interesting in that I'm pretty sure the the version of the film that's out on Blu-ray right now is a fan edit that somebody had made long after the movie came out that composed uh, like the missing bits and pieces from his director's cut. Do you know anything about this, Nick? Yeah. Well, it was a, uh, yeah, it is basically a fan edit that he like approves. And yeah, is that like, is that like a shout factory release or something? I'm, 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 something like yeah. that. But I know there's, cause it, there's technically no official director's cut of uh, Raising Cain that like he oversaw, but I know that he mm-hmm. was unhappy. I think that like initially didn't he, it was something like, when they finished the movie, he wound up like re-editing it before it was released because like the initial like uh, work print cut or whatever he just thought was a complete mess or, or, or so there was some test screen or something that didn't go well. And so he, he, he like rearranged the movie extensively. Um, yeah. So that's really something along those lines. Yeah. yeah it, it feels very like, uh, do you know the story about Paul Schrader with uh, the dying of the light and his version yeah, yeah, there's, you can get it. You can actually get his version. Um, he leaked it. Yeah, yeah he put it I, on Pirate Bay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, for a and, while, you uh, could get it from UCLA, actually. If you went to UCLA, they would give it to you on a USB stick. I think the runtime's like 71 minutes or something. He, like, yeah, loads out of it. It's very short, and the editing style of it is uh, it's very kinetic and very... I don't know. He does some interesting things with that because he only has, like, low-grade quality footage to work with to fill in the gaps like the like the, the the dailies were like really low res so he i think he just like picked up his phone and started like filming it and tried to make it like a cool music video technique i don't i don't know it, it's enjoyable but uh i i mean i i don't know how to compare it against the original version because i haven't watched uh the dying of the light oh i, I saw it netflix or something how was it's- it uh, you know, Nicholas Cage and um Anton Yelchin, like Ant- Anton Yelchin's performance in it alone, I'd say makes it worth watching. He's really, really good in it. So is Cage. But the movie, it, it's weird. The movie feels very limp. It feels very like it. It, it feels like sub made for TV. Honestly, when I watched uh, his version of it, it reminded me a lot of Brian De Palma's Domino, which came out last year, and that it feels very stripped down, very cheaply made, and very overseen by foreign entities we're like yeah. okay yeah we'll, we'll give you this money get this name guy pierce great but then like you watch the movie and it, it like there's a disconnect there it doesn't feel like a legitimate film it feels like 
so is this how like they washed money for a, a drug <laughs> operation or <laughs> you know so I don't know. We get to we get to rewind a little bit because from Phantom of the Paradise and Sisters, Brian De Palma winds up getting his first real big commercial feature, which is Carrie. And I don't know if Carrie feels as much like a traditional Brian De Palma film as his other works. And I felt this way with Scarface as well when I rewatched it recently. What do you guys make of that? There are moments, I feel that way about a lot of like De Palma's like more commercial stuff is like there are moments where it's like undeniable and it's almost jarring when like when you have those really De Palma-y moments in these films that are otherwise like not necessarily, uh, you know, marked by his usual like characteristics. Um, I definitely feel that way about Carrie. Like I think that like the obvious De Palma moment is like the fucking the, the, the 360 camera when they're dancing scene that I fucking hate. It makes me sick every time. I like. I literally can't watch it. Um, speaking uh, speaking of the Palma moments, let me just ask you guys because you're more familiar with his work than I am. Is that shot where it's a first shot of of one of the main characters and they bend over and there's an evil person behind? Is that like a, a shot that's he made famous, or is that something that happened? Because I saw it happening in Racing Kane. It happened in Mission to Mars, and I yeah. think it happened in. Blowout too, where someone just bends over and then there's someone behind him just with like an evil face. Is that like a trademark of his work or is that just something that for whatever reason he included in those three films? Uh, I mean, if you saw it in four of his movies, I'd say it's a trademark. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that, it felt very jarring at points because I was like, oh, there it is again. Oh, okay. But it's, it's just a, a weird use of, of that for like a surprise reveal. And uh, especially felt forced in Mission to Mars. Uh, in that scene when, when uh, what's his name, uh, Cheadle, Don Cheadle, shows up with a giant afro and a beard. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. No, we, we, let's, we get to save Mission okay. Let's not jump into that yet. I have so much to say about that movie. It's, okay. Oh, boy. Uh, Carrie, though. Carrie's a classic. It's the first real adaptation of any Stephen King's material. And uh, it's a... It's a well-done movie. It doesn't... I mean, to what you were saying before, Nick, it does feel weird when you see a conventional film that employs a lot of his style and his signature shots and just the rhythm that he brings to the table every time he tackles a film like this. And I I think maybe for that reason, because it is just more general, more mainstream, it's not one of my favorites of his, but uh, I I do think it is a very well-done film and certainly better than the two remakes that came long after the fact. Oh, God, terrible. Yeah. The, uh, have either of you ever seen that TV movie version of Carrie from like 2003, 2004? Not all of it. I feel like I like watched it on like Fearnet or something when I was in high school. I feel like I've seen parts of it. But Fearnet. I don't, yeah. You remember oh Fearnet? God. Yeah. Pre-Shutter. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, I've long forgotten about that. Wow. I saw there the, were a lot of, lot of, lot of Friday nights spent renting stuff on Fearnet. I saw the recent remake half of it because I just, yeah, that's another one that I a completely unnecessary remake with a already attractive actress that doesn't work at all with the story. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it just gave me like a, a better appreciation of the original one, even though, you know, it's not like you said, one of his best, uh, I would say, but whatever they did with that remake was just, uh, just horrible. The original, just like, you know, every fucking, what more can be, 
with the carry story, I mean, what more is there to be said about that? I mean, it's not even that long of a novel anyway. I feel like the movie that De Palma did encapsulated it well enough. I mean, are we just due for one every every 25 years or so, every 15 years? We just, we just make it kind of modern, but not modern enough to be now. It's just like uh, about 10 years ago. So there's no you know technology like there is now. But Yeah, I mean, yeah. I feel like... We'll only stop making them once the government like successfully uh, uh, suppresses all the um, periods of like, you know, high school girls around the country. Yeah, <laughs> like they're trying to do. Then it won't be really a relevant tale anymore. But I think know. that might have been the plot to uh, what the Rage Carry Two. What very nineties grunge. So what 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 happens after he gets Carry? What is the next film in the lineup? From there, because that was obviously a success. Is it? Um, I I think it was the Fury. I want to say after Carrie's the Fury. I might be wrong. He did uh, home movies and then Dress to Kill. Oh, okay. Oh no, sorry, the Fury. You're right. Is the Fury home movies and Dress to Kill? Yeah, because I think the Fury kind of didn't do well. So then he went back. He did like a low budget. He did home movies, which I guess was supposed to be returned to the wedding fucking thing that he did with De Niro. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Dress to Kill is just more like a classic. Dress to Kill is one that I actually don't like that much, um, actually. But it, it's it's just more like classic, just like, again, like a heightened riff on Hitchcock. Yeah, it, it's not one of my favorites, but it has so much of like his essence in there at a at like a high quality that I enjoy it. Um, and that does kick off a streak of films that I think wind up defining his career, where you have Dress to Kill... You have Blowout uh, all the way up until maybe about Carlito's Way, where I think that just about puts an end to things. Maybe, yeah. I mean, one could make the argument for uh, Mission Impossible, but if, again, that's another one of these movies that feels uh, very, very mainstream, very little compared to his other movies like Dress to Kill or, or any of the other ones we've discussed thus far uh, in, in comparison like him you know yeah very, well, I just san- want- very sanitized very clean very non yeah, yeah, yeah. all the work that he did before it doesn't even feel like you know a movie by him because everything's too pristine too clean i don't know right it feels like you're watching a mission impossible film with one brian de palma angle for every like 25 <laughs> minutes of film you know and then right. Brett ratner directed the rest of it yeah well, Carlita, not to, I know we're, I'm trying not to jump around, but uh, Carlita's Way is an interesting one because it doesn't, I was, when I was rewatching it, it's like, it doesn't feel like a Brian De Palma film until uh, the chase through the train station at the very end where like, and then yeah. like suddenly you have that preposterous shot of Al Pacino laying down on the fucking escalator. Like there's people like, you know, two steps at, they, they can all see Al Pacino laying down with a fucking gun pointed. <laughs> and and that's very De Palma where it's like, okay, this doesn't make logical sense, but like, this is a fucking cool camera. This is cool to look at. Yeah. But the rest of that movie is really just kind of by the numbers in a way that's not even not just, yeah, it's not interesting. I watched it only for the first time recently after, uh, you know, people, especially in the aughts, I feel like that's when Scarface and Carlito's way were both considered classics all of a sudden. I don't know if that was really the case in the 90s so much. Um, but, uh, you know, I only watched it recently and I was I was very let down by it. I didn't find it to be 
as uh, impressive as many had made it out to be. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that shortly. Rest to kill, we have to give it to. So it's Michael Caine as a, as a trans, and he's insane. And uh, <laughs> I mean, that's going to be a recurring hands. theme. There, there seems to be a recurring theme in many of these Brian De Palma films where if you dress up as a woman, you know, you're going to fucking kill some people. You get yeah. some blood on those hands. Would you consider that offensive now? <laughs> Nowadays, do you think that would Offensive that movie would be able to come out? Do you think it would be able to come out now? Or like, yeah, so uh, hmm. I mean, Mel Gibson would maybe put that together. I don't know about anyone else. In, <laughs> I would love to see Mel Gibson's take on the trans murderer genre. Yeah, I mean that's what passion was missing, right? Yeah. With all the Romans clad and clad in <laughs> high what the, heels. That's oh, what the absolutely. new one's gonna be. The resurrection is gonna come out wearing a wig and a dress. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! Um, so I mean, dress to kill, uh, Hans. Do you want to? Oh, you you didn't see this one, no. right? So, uh, Nick, do you mind summing up dress to kill? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's actually been a minute since I've seen this one, but it's uh, Michael Caine. What you've got that kid? Michael Caine is a therapist or a psychologist, and he's actually uh, dressing up as a lady and fucking killing people, right? Yeah, that's that, I mean, that, that's essentially that, that sums it up well enough. Um, well, it's funny because like the twist, I, I know that it, at the end of the movie, it's supposed to, I guess it's supposed to play as a reveal that he's actually the person or the lady, but it's like, mm-hmm. you kind of, I feel like, you know, from like, I don't know, before the first he's, act is over. He's kind of a big guy too, isn't he? Like it's a very gigantic woman then <laughs> because yeah. he's, he's not, he's not very feminine looking either. Well, I mean, I'm not, at no point yeah. in the movie does it look like a woman. Like it always looks like a dude in a wig with big glasses on and fucking gloves. Like there's like at no point while you're watching the movie, you're just like, Oh, I think this broad is actually killing people. Yeah. It's uh, I'm, I don't know. It, it, it's very peculiar. <laughs> he's got a lot of motifs to his films where people play dress up and, and do some bad things. Have you guys ever seen uh body double? Oh, Body Double's good. Body Double's one of my favorites. Now, this comes after Blowout and Scarface, and this is all like, Hans, I think you would really enjoy Body Double. It's got that guy from Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 who kind of looks like Bill Maher, and he's the the lead character, and it's got a rear window aspect where his neighbor's just like, hey, check out out over here. There's a naked woman getting dressed at 7 o'clock every night. Go take a look at her. (laughs) And he, like, tries to, like, drive this dude insane i guess like he's i don't i don't know it's a very very peculiar film but um it turns out that you know he's uh he's dressing up as like a native american man and <laughs> running down the beach and slashing women maybe i don't I, I don't know there's there's so much to uh be said about that movie it probably deserves its own episode and the ending <laughs> the ending of body double is is uh quite interesting where it's just like they're in a movie and then they go back to the like they reveal that it's a all a film, it's all a forgery, and then they get back to like the actual story, even though it's I don't I don't know how right. to really yeah. talk about that movie, like the Holy Mountain or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, it's like yeah. Anyway, sorry, uh, Dress to Kill. Dress to Kill. I, I mean, I, I don't know if I really have too much to say about this film. Well, um, I would body. They don't oh, show ahead. his face. Is, is it just like a knife with? Fat fingers holding it while, he, while he's delayed. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they show him in sunglasses and a wig, and he's got like uh, a woman at a funeral type of look to him, you know? Yeah. Oh, okay. Headset. 
and all that. Uh, oh, anyway, right, right, right. it's it's the, I would say it's the first movie where like De Palma, like I love De Palma's cool camera moves, um, and they're not always motivated. But like, and it's right. it's a, it's funny. It's a sequence that's praised, but it's one that I just like completely disconnect from when I watch it. The museum sequence, that POV where before he kills that kid's mom, but it's just it, and it's it's the POV of like the hand. Like like going through the through the various rooms of the museum, like following her, um, but it just like doesn't work. Like like for like it's just so awkwardly staged that it really takes me out of the movie. And and I think that this movie is actually where uh, his camera work, like his camera work, as cool as it is, this is where he starts to like he he doesn't um, incorporate it as deftly from this point on as his earlier movies, in my opinion. Hmm. Uh, following Dress to Kill, he winds up doing one of his more iconic features, Blowout, starring John Travolta. Uh, this is this might be the first movie of his that I checked out strictly because it was a Brian De Palma film, and I had heard so much about it. And I watched it maybe about 17, 18 years old, and I was like, wow, this movie's a real piece of shit. Wow. And I just like gave up on it. And then I rewatched it maybe about five years ago, and I started to understand the more technical aspects of, of filmmaking, and uh, you know, I grew to appreciate it, and it's become uh, one of my favorites, maybe my favorite of his, uh, definitely. Hans, what did, what did you make of uh, Blowout? Was this your first time watching it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the first time I haven't heard of it. Uh, it reminded me that uh, Travolta was an actor once. You know, there, I, I really enjoyed his performance here. It wasn't over the top. It was very, I feel like it was very reserved, which I'm not used to just because I'm more familiar with his with later Travolta. work. Yeah, just for the yeah. fun, fun of it. Uh, and uh, it, it just, I there should was mention, just a couple of. Uh, I got, I got uh, my, my copy of Snake Eyes at, at Rite Aid in a two pack with Face Off. So oh, fuck yeah. That was, <laughs> that was a pretty good night of, uh, movie watching anyway continue on yeah no i i I really enjoyed his uh performance even though i did find it a little bit weird that um when he was at the hospital right at the beginning and he's you know caring for this woman whose life is just saved and then immediately he's like oh what if i just fuck this woman you know like immediately he switches from like i just rescued this poor woman and he's like maybe i'll just go for a drink with her that's how it worked in 81 what are you talking about that's how you used to be able to do that And, and, People uh, used to show gratitude, you know. What I mean? <laughs> right, they used to thank you with their vagina. I yep. yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I uh, visually just like you know well, most of his movies, or at least the ones that I watch, uh, very interesting. Uh, one scene did take me out though, which I thought was very convenient, and it felt very '80s movie uh, when he's hiding the tapes on the ceiling, and you can see him from a window downstairs, like from the street. Very conveniently, it's just like that spot. And then afterwards, you know, it's when the tapes get stolen and deleted or whatever. But uh, I really enjoyed it. And again, I, I don't I'm, don't really know Travolta as someone that can act because of, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm more familiar with his over-the-top, uh, crazy... Uh, well, can he act, movies. really? I mean, what, what, what breakout role where it's like, damn, that's a, that's a fine Travolta performance. Has he done? It's always like, yeah, he's good in that. Yeah, mm. yeah. I'm trying to think. Even like I was rewatching Pulp Fiction, and it's like he's fine. It's not. Yeah, he, he's hammy in it still, but he's toned yeah. down. He's reserved enough. 
he's not doing uh, you know, special prosecutor in fucking the people versus OJ in that movie. He's he's not doing <laughs> the taking of taking of Pelham one, two, three. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess that's I guess it's more of a, a compliment to him not being so over the top more than a great performance, I guess. I wasn't expecting that because every time I see his face, I'm just expecting crazy Travolta. Uh, but I really enjoyed it in this. And uh, yeah, I, uh, it's definitely something uh, a movie that I would recommend and watch again, which I, I wasn't expecting from a Travolta. Just to overlap with Paul Schrader again, I'm pretty sure he wound up getting blowout as a result of turning down American Gigolo because there were gay rumors back in the late 70s, early oh, right. 80s, about Travolta. He didn't want the word gigolo. Even though Richard Gere sleeps with nothing but women in that film. Oh, he my didn't God. Want, he so much pussy. Yeah, he didn't want the association there. That That's a movie it's, that kind of falls apart a little uh, in, like, the third act, American Gigolo. But, um, yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I, I still like I, I forgive it just because it looks so fucking good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It's a gorgeous film. It's a well-made film. It goes in a direction I don't think uh, most of the audience is anticipating when they started off or even when they're like 40 minutes in. But uh, it, it's a very good movie. Isn't it funny that back in those days, people like Richard Gere and Dustin Hoffman were considered leading men, like handsome leading men that just, this is the the guy that fucks on your movie and this little ass fucking Dustin Hoffman and... Well, hold on a second. Nobody would consider Dustin Hoffman (laughs) and Richard Gere in the same category in terms of looks, Hans. Really? Yeah, Richard Gere is a good-looking dude. Richard Gere is considered a classically handsome actor, and you just described him with a fucking little hamster man, (laughs) Dustin Hoffman. (laughs) Richard Gere looks a lot like my granddad, which is why I've always seen him as, you know, like a little fucking... My my granddad is like 5'3". Uh, so I, I guess I've always pictured him. He, he, he uh, Richard Gere reminds me of the dad from uh, Little People, Big World. You know that little. <laughs> oh, that, he little that. Movie? Well, no, you're in the face. You're right. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. So I've never, I've never considered him like a leading man. And every time he's brought up, or every time I see that, oh, this is the the guy that fucks everyone. I'm a little bit confused just because I. This Richard is the... Gere's five eleven, by the way. All right. Well, <laughs> I guess. Height. I, I have yeah I I uh, the little people big world thing really uh, skewed my uh, idea of him I guess but yeah I just I, I find it funny that th- those were the leading men from the eighties you don't even have to be in shape or anything you know well hang on I also <laughs> I don't when I think of leading men from the eighties the first two people who come to mind are not Richard Gere and Dustin Hoffman <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean this this is the era that gave birth to Tom Cruise's career. So, oh yeah, you gotta think. I, I think you're thinking more seventies. Seventies, you could yeah. definitely be ugly and short and have fucked barrel up chested. teeth. And I mean, that well, no, fifties, fifties, you could be barrel chested. John Wayne was not in shape. He had like enough muscle tone to forgive whatever fat was on his chest and stomach. <laughs> that that's how it worked back then. Now, now you gotta look yeah. like. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm blanking on a fucking reference. Anyway, we're, well, there's we're no, back to, there's no uh, leading men anymore. Right. That, you have to look like well. Iron Man. You have to be in the Iron Man suit. You need uh, at least $100,000 worth of CG is really yeah. what makes you a leading man now. Anyway, so Blowout is uh, one of the most iconic Brian De Palma films. 
where would you say it ranks in terms of favorability for yourself, Nick? Uh, you know, it was number one. I think Sisters became my number one um, after this rewatch. But I, I mean, Blowout's just fun because Blowout, like, it feels like he's playing in so many genres in it. Like, you get a little bit of everything in that movie. I even love, I love that, like, he throws in a fucking crazy car chase um, at the very end. Like, it's just, I, I mean, I, I think Blow, if I was going to recommend a Brian De Palma movie to someone I can only pick one, I'd pick Blowout. I think it is, yeah, yeah, it's easily the most digestible and purest of his uh, style, of his art. He kind of has like a little bit of like an Oliver Stone tinge to this with the whole conspiratorial aspect. uh, Oh, yeah. Involving the murder and all that. And then he does wind up working with Oliver Stone for, I think it was his next film, uh, Scarface was, where Oliver Stone had written the script for that. And I think the movie was tied up with another director for a while before Brian De Palma wound up making his adaptation with uh, Al Pacino. It it really gave me an appreciation for old editing, too. Uh, I don't mean the movie. I just mean whatever Travolta does to create that little video with the sound. Because I, I like complaining about how bad I am at editing with Premiere. And it's so easy of just like bloop, bloop, and that's it. But he has to like cut the little images and like create like a little flip book and then take pictures of them and that um i don't know it just i i found a, an appreciation for old editing just because of how much of a fucking pain in the ass was to create those you know 20 10 seconds or whatever it is that he he makes in that movie mm-hmm. well i think there's some some conveniences made with the technology hmm. in this movie that were not that were not real <laughs> uh at any point in time but uh, it's definitely, yes. Yeah. (laughs) What I was thinking of. Um, As far as Scarface goes, uh, do you guys hold that in the same regard to Carrie? Because it feels a little bit more like a pure version of De Palma, maybe because he's kind of perfected his style by this point. He knows what to insert and where. Yeah. Uh, It feels, it, it feels maybe more accomplished than many of his films that had led up to it and just epic in scale. I, I don't re- like Scarface that much. I was about to say that. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I, uh, I rewatched it recently and I think just the overexposure of the movie, uh, even though I had not seen it in, I don't know, over 10 years. You like how there's no Hispanic actors in the movie at all. Yeah. They're all white, white, but <laughs> you have With Robert Loggia. With that accent that, even though I live here, I've never heard anyone talk with an accent before. <laughs> I'm surrounded by Latin Whenever I work at a call center, it's just Latin American people speaking English, and no one ever speaks like that. I don't know. But I guess and nobody, the- nobody discusses that. Nobody ever criticizes Scarface or Al Pacino for doing brownface ever. With his Razor Ramon. <laughs> it's his yeah. fake Cuban accent. Yeah. Uh, I think the overexposure of it, though, uh, really made me not enjoy it maybe as much as I would if it wasn't such an iconic, such a replayed scenes and replayed quotes and all that. Because when I was rewatching it, I, even though I had not seen it in a long time, I already knew what the quotes were or what was going to happen or what the actions were just because of how exposed the film uh, has been. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really enjoy my time with it. Uh, 
And I think that that's a big fa factor of it. I just nothing surprised me and nothing really kept me engaged as much as I guess it did when I first watched it 10, 20 years ago, whenever that was. And um, what would you cite as your issues with the movie? Now? And honestly, kind of the same stuff as Hans. I, I think it's also, I think that it kind of suffers from like the same disconnect I have where it is like, again, it, it's a, it's De Palma doing a more commercial mainstream movie. And then whenever he, like whenever you have a really De Palma-y moment, it just takes me out of it. it the, the, the pieces don't feel like they fit together very well. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like overexposure has just resulted in that movie, I guess, being decayed in terms of rewatchability. Um, Why that one, too? I never understood that. Why that is that the movie that is picked as, like, you know, an iconic gangster movie when there's nothing, nothing really exceptional about it? There's nothing really... I guess it's just De Niro and over the top and no, you know, and over the top. I mean, De Niro, uh, Pacino. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't. I, like I don't know. This, dude. <laughs> but here's the thing, too. I mean, what, what was the commercial success of that movie upon its release? Because it did have negative reviews up until maybe about the aughts or so. I remember you Let could look. look at Rotten Tomatoes maybe about ten, fifteen years ago, and you would see it hovering around like sixty percent. Um, I know it didn't get that good of critical feedback back in the 80s when it came out. And it didn't even really have a cult status, I think, until that might have started to bubble up in the 90s. Because that became one of those videotapes you would always see on everybody's shelf. The double pack mm -hmm. of Scarface. And then you'd see Jurassic Park next to it. And you know maybe Jerry Maguire is as good as it gets. Um, rap music, but, I think, had a lot to do with it. The iconography yeah. on, in rap music. Uh, oh, yeah. According to this, the budget was thirty-seven million, and it made sixty-six million. So I, I guess, successful for the time. Yeah, yeah. But not, not what I think. Um, not what I think I would have thought of. Like, because I guess, yeah, over time, its success really has been inflated. Because that's a mo that's a decent success. That's not like a runaway. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't. It clearly, you're right. It wasn't immediately iconic. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! So I didn't know they were remaking it. You know, oh yeah, Mike. You haven't heard about this. Michael B. Jordan is going to be Scarface, okay, or something. Something. Wait, I, mean, I mean, I heard the Coens were writing it. The Coens are writing it, and the guy who did the Suspiria remake and Call Me by Your Name is uh, the director. Huh. Weird choice. They've been talking about remaking that movie for twenty years now. I remember when Leo DiCaprio was supposed to be the new Scarface <laughs> back in two thousand five, and. It really looked like they were set to go with that. And I, I forget who was slated to direct it at that point. And then the plug got pulled on it. That's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not inherently against the idea of remaking it. But again, it, it's just one of those circumstances where it's like, what, what more can be said here? You have the original Scarface, which everybody has forgotten about. You have the Pacino Scarface, which, in my opinion, did everything so well. It doesn't need another rendition. Uh, especially from a inferior filmmaker. Right. Well, now in, instead of shooting people, he's just going to tweet at them mean things. That's how they bring it to the to the new age. He just has a very popular Twitter account where he just curses at people in bad English. That's Michael B. Jordan, though, like I don't I don't understand what they're going to do. Like, is he going to? Isn't that racist, Hans? To have a say, black drug dealer. Shouldn't he be white? 
Yeah. For safety purposes. Well, black know? Cuban. It's <laughs> just playing black, black Cuban. Why do you think that Michael B. Jordan uh, can't write? What do you mean bad English? Well, because the <laughs> Scarface I character think- is Cuban, so he speaks in like a really weird, with like a weird accent. I just so want to be Michael B. Jordan doing yeah. brown face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, 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 I would see that. I would, I would be on board. Oh, absolutely! That. That's the only way that I would be interested in seeing it. I don't want to see just a regular gangster movie because you lose the entirety of what the character is, which is that over the top, you know, stereotypical, never existed Cuban person. Uh, if you just make him just like a black drug dealer, then it's just uh, whatever. Like, who cares? Why would I be interested in it? Yeah, right, so. right. Profidel. You know, it has to be Profidel and have a communist flag behind him. And Are they even going to use drugs? That's offensive now, right? To people that do drugs. Oh, he'll be a gun smuggler <laughs> in this one. He'll be a gun smuggler uh, from Maga. Australia, and they will get uh, Eric Bana. And that's how it'll go. And it'll be some something very stupid. Yeah, he'll be, he'll be, he'll be MAGA. He'll be, <laughs> he'll be a Trump supporter. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Ted Nugent, Scarface. That's so body idea. double, yes, <laughs> body body double follows uh, Scarface, and that's kind of a more laid back film. Uh, in comparison, it's not this grandiose, uh, giant, uh, wide scale uh, movie about the decline of a character. It's just uh, a guy being gaslit by his weird fucking friend, and then it's uh, a Palma then, movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And I haven't seen the movie that follows that, which is Wise Guys. I think that's a Joe Piscopo movie. Oh, right. Yep. Fuck. Uh, it's been a minute for me. I have seen parts of it. I think it got, like, decent reviews, actually. That's, that's a very weird choice for him. He does Wise Guys with Danny DeVito, Joe Piscopo, and Harvey Keitel. And that was a flop. That, that, uh, that lost money. Oh, dude. No shit. Really? I know Joe somebody Piscopo? liked it. I feel like... I feel like Ebert liked it or something. Of course, Ebert liked it. Well, where he's, is he he's now? Got some... Where <laughs> is he now? <laughs> exactly. That's right. <laughs> We're here. Where is he? He's got some really <laughs> peculiar takes, Ebert. I know he gave Paul Blart Mall Cop like three stars because he felt good that about fat representation. Finally, <laughs> the fat guy was getting his. Dude, he gave. I know that he gave Spawn an almost perfect score and compared it to Hieronymus Bosch. Wow. Which, like, I mean, look, dude, I, I, that's a cool take. <laughs> like, I, like, I love when he defends those takes. He gave, honest, uh, did, you, you said that he, when we did the episode on Spawn, right? What? Classic masterpiece of filmmaking. Yes. <laughs> he gave uh, five stars to Precious because he loves fat black women. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, he, he, he vehemently opposed uh, Blue Velvet when it came out. He thought David Lynch just wanted an excuse to abuse his girlfriend on screen, Isabella right. Rossellini. Um, very, very strange person. He was kind of, he was like white knighting in that fucking at the movies review. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He was the original like SJW before it became mainstream, you know, uh, in terms of. You know, his reviews, you know, obviously he was very critical of the Brown Bunny, Vincent Gallo's masterpiece. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I recently bought a pair of Vincent Gallo's pants. How about that? I found his eBay <laughs> store. I found his personal eBay store. 
I started browsing things. I was like, I'm going to buy these pants. Wait, you mean, hold on. So you mean it's a Vincent Gallo brand or pants that he's worn? No, his, his pants, his personal <laughs> pants that he's worn before. Are you going to put them on, dude? Does he oh, have yeah. Only? I mean, they look sick. Does he have an OnlyFans too? Why is he selling his pants? He's Does selling his, his underwear? pants, his jackets. Actually, I'm pretty sure one of his jackets is, a, is his jacket he wore in Palookaville with uh, that guy from Devil's Rejects who plays Cop's brother from the first one. I forget his name. He's like a B-movie actor, big Trump Oh, uh, William Forsyth? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it him? Yeah. I'm, I'm fairly confident he, he's in the movie with him. Anyway, he's got a cool jacket collection, cool pants collection. Bell bottoms, plaid, checkered. Gonna be look looking great. Feeling. Why is he sell? Wait, why is he selling his clothes on eBay? Uh, I I don't know. He's not hard up for money. He just bought an apartment at the uh, Trump Tower in Manhattan, which I think was upward of five million dollars. He's he has money, so I don't know why he's doing this. And it's like very reasonable prices, like thirty five dollars for a rare pair of Gucci pants or something. <laughs> that gallery get, you get the this. best deals i'm getting on this the minute that i get off this call <laughs> yeah i'll uh i'll link you guys but uh anyhow so uh, you're fine you're, you're good with your graphic tee collection you don't want to spruce I'm, things up i'm too fat i can't fit in them anyway so <laughs> i'm good he's too skinny his his cock is too big i can't fit that in my you know yeah i was I, gonna ask you about that I've heard over the years that that was a stunt dick. No, it is, isn't it? That was or I, somebody said that like it like. Shameful. I I thought that it wasn't in fact actual fellatio in the brown bunny. Here's what I've heard, and this might not be true, and it would demystify the entire movie, and uh, it would have killed his career for no reason if this is indeed the case. I have heard that he had a dildo for the scenes where he's, you know, visibly in the shot with his face showing. And that he auctioned the dildo off on eBay not too long after the movie. Now, he's had this eBay account since 2001, so it's entirely possible that happened. Mm. And that, for the actual fellatio bits, she ha- <clears throat> he had Chloe Sevigny's boyfriend step in for those because she was seeing somebody at the time. Oh, interesting. Just, uh, just movie magic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing about these behind-the-scenes little bits and pieces. They don't teach you in film school. So the Untouchables follows wise guys. He goes from one mob <laughs> film to another. What a fucking and, uh, segue. <laughs> and it's kind of, it's, it's impressive that he manages to make the Untouchables with Sean Connery, uh, young up and coming Kevin Costner at this time after uh, wise guys is such a tremendous flop. Yeah. Um, and, it's, do you, oh, do you put this? Do you put this in the same category as like Car- Carrie and Scarface and Mission Impossible, where it feels a bit too mainstream to be pure De Palma? Or yeah, I, I, no, again, because it has those like it's got those great De Palma sequences. The fuck, the staircase, obviously, like in, an achievement of filmmaking, right? But the but the whole movie to me just kind of feels limp. Like it's a movie that really pushes me away. Nobody in it is doing anything that I, I think is really interesting. I don't identify with any of the characters. He wastes Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro uh, now in in definitively the worst portrayal with Ed, since the release of Capone. Robert De Niro is one of the worst on screen Capones. I think that we have seen you seen Capone in movies. 
No, I really, really want to. I watched a couple clips on YouTube. But it was enough to make me be like, yo, this fucking, I love this. <laughs> I, I've been meaning to watch that. Hans, do you want to do an episode of movies on Capone sometime? Sure. Soon? Yeah, I've had it for a while. I just haven't taken the time. You have it? Yeah. I, uh, you know, I rated the, the typical uh, cinema that we. Oh, oh yes. Oh, the, yeah. the great Costa yeah. Rican <laughs> theater. <Yep. laughs> yes. Uh, the makeup for that movie looks awful, by the way. It's just Tom Hardy with dried glue on his face to make him look old. I'm well, I'm very. It's visionary director Just Trang too, right? I you know what I can't stand that fucking guy <laughs> because he he dug his heels in on Fantastic Four because he had an idea for that that would have been like some Cronenberg esque superhero film and you can see that in like the first half of the movie and I like I like that and then it falls apart obviously it becomes a giant mess and disaster. And now he's like trying to suck the public's dick and the corporate dick on Twitter. Like, haha, isn't my movie bad? Isn't it terrible? I don't want to release my cut of the movie. It's a piece of shit. You fucking fake phony. Oh, it makes me want to like stab him, you know? <laughs> I really hate that guy. He should have he stuck to his guns and defended his movie. And he didn't. He didn't. He's, st- he's trying to worm his way back in. And now his movie is not getting good reviews. And he's trying to ham it up a little bit more. for. The- and I... Oh, is he going? Is he is he going with the negative reviews? Uh, I don't think he's leaned into it yet for Capone. But okay. he said something about how he uh, he he made the movie that he wanted to make, and like he understands that. Like he says, something like forty three percent of the people liking my movie is great. He's like that's a lot of people, or something like that. <laughs> I, I think Fantastic Four was averaging what like sixteen percent. So for him, it's it's pretty up there. And I, I mean, Huge. he did Chronicle. Chronicle was a decent movie. That is now forever stained because of the name Max Landis, who I still follow oh, on yeah. Instagram. I like to see what he's up to every Dude, once in a while. He, he won't stop going live. Like the man cannot stop giving advice to, to struggling writers. He cannot stop hitting that go live button. Yep. He's doing some teaching courses now, I hear. And he's, he's trying to, I think he, he really wants to get back into the spotlight. He can't let it go because he doesn't know well, what else to do with his life. He's uh, an- he was announced to uh, write the American Werewolf in London remake. Was he? Another... Were they just gonna? Were they really just gonna get John Landis's son to do that? It says Max Landis director. Oh, director! Yeah, director and John director. Landis and him <clears throat> writing it. Yeah, so he's gonna direct it and write it with his dad, I guess. Oh, that sucks. Yep. Dude, the Landis's are one of the darkest families. <laughs> like, yes. you know, I want them gone. Dude. It's like them and the Clintons. I would love to, to push both of those families down the well. Yes, both both responsible for, for disappearing children. Absolutely. Right. Sorry about um, the fireworks, by the way, guys. Oh, is that what's happening? Okay. Is like- That's what's happening. Anyhow, um, so, yes, uh, The Untouchables, I, I think it works as a conventional film but as a brian de palma film i completely agree with your assessment nick that it feels very very toned down very sterilized and it doesn't do anything particularly interesting with any of the characters with the actors portraying them i think sean connery maybe comes the closest in that regard i think robert de niro is enjoyable enough because he goes uh you know a little over the top as capone but at the end of the day it's a pretty forgettable entry in his chronology. Is, yeah. is, 
Is a runtime justified? Because it's, it's what is kind the of runtime? a long, it's kind of a long movie, isn't it? It is. Uh, it's like, is it two hours? I, I feel like it's a little more than two hours. Oh no, it is two hours. I don't know why I thought it was longer than that. Wow, way to way to overhype that, Hans. Yep. <laughs> yep. I know that's a long time for you. But... <laughs> it's a long time uh, falling asleep. Can- Casualties of War is the movie he follows that up with. Have either of you guys seen that? I've done an episode on Casualties of War already. You know what? I haven't seen it. I've heard that it's good. I've heard that it's worth watching. It is worth watching. It's a big step up from uh, The Untouchables. But again, I, I find that by the late 80s and once we start to get into the 90s, he's starting to drain himself of his own style. So you don't see much of the trademark... Uh, De Palma looks in this film, but it does have a great performance from Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn does well. There's like a bunch of young actors who would later become famous in that movie as well. I know Stephen Baldwin just has like a one second cameo where he's walking by the screen as well as the guy who plays Dokes on Dexter. He's in the movie and does well. Um, and it's essentially about uh, corruption in the military and these young men uh, taking a hostage from a Vietnamese village and then uh, raping her and eventually killing her. Michael J. Fox trying to report it uh, to you know the higher-ups and them trying to bury that and actually try to take his life to try and keep all of that stifled. It's a, it's a very well-done movie that falls apart in the last five minutes because... We start that film with him falling asleep on the train, right? And he's in San Francisco or something. He sees an Asian woman who's falling asleep. And then that triggers these memories to come back in his sleep. And then uh, when he wakes up at the end of the movie, he, um, he follows her off of the train. Like he's just stalking this woman now and then starts speaking in Vietnamese to her. Shouting Vietnam, like much like a Mark Wahlberg story from the early 90s. <laughs> he, he starts shouting in Vietnamese at her and she's just like, don't worry, it's over now. And then you hear like sappy love song music playing and fade to black. It's very TV movie-esque. It's awful. What? That's, that's fucking awful. That made me hate the movie in the last five minutes. Don't watch that movie. It sucks. Anyway. <laughs> so that ends his, his 80s run. And he winds up doing The Bonfire of the Vanities, which is a notorious Hollywood flop. I haven't seen this movie. Uh, I know a little bit about it. It has Bruce Willis, Tom Hanks, and I think Melanie Melanie Griffith is in it. And it was a disaster. Um, Never heard of it. Nick, did you you see Bonfire of the Vanities? I did. It's a a very weird fucking movie. Um, I don't know why he chose to direct it if he was a hired gun or if it was like, no, it was a project of his, wasn't it? I'm not sure. I know that the book had come out a couple of years earlier and um, it was like a hot Hollywood property that he, I don't know if he shepherded it or if he just wound up being a director for hire, like we said before, but uh, that, that's about the gist of my knowledge. Of yeah. I, uh, I don't know a lot about the behind the scenes, um, Making of it, I just know that it's it's another one that I, I haven't seen. I think I saw it when I was like in high school, um, yeah. and yeah, just a just a just a really odd movie. I don't even think I was that familiar with De Palma when I watched it. 
I just know that I didn't like it very much. And I don't really remember the point of like what, of like what the movie was re- like. I don't remember what that movie was about other than it was a weird Tom Hanks role. Well, I don't, I, I mean, I don't think we really need to go on about it that much. Uh, especially with Raising Cain being the film that follows that. Uh, I know we talked about it quite a bit already, but did either of you guys have anything to add to that movie, which I personally find disastrous? Up, up, until, up until, as a matter of fact, up until Mission to Mars, I considered that my least favorite Brian De Palma film, save for Domino, maybe. Yeah, it's, uh, I just, I... It's just really interesting. Like I, I don't know how he makes Raising King. I like I, I, I don't understand how the dude who's so good at the genre that uh, that Raising King is trying to be just like fucking. Had, had, there's so many missteps in that movie, or or just I guess just like miscalculations. And it should be like it's it's weird because it's everything that he's like been refining like for, you know for the past like decade like up to this point. Mm. One of the things that I found really weird about this movie was the music just the the music that was used to it in it was very it was like classical like very dramatic uh, a lot of strings which didn't fit at all with what the movie actually is like i feel like the the soundtrack uh that they used was trying to make it seem like it was more dramatic than what it actually was because you have john lithgow hamming it up on screen and then you get a score like psycho you know, throughout the movie that doesn't really mesh with it. And I don't know if, if that was the original intention of it or, you know, because I'm watching it 20, 30 years after it came out. But uh, that was, I found it a little bit odd, but it also added an extra layer of crazy to what's, what was already being shown on screen, which didn't really make much sense at times. Um, but yeah, the, the music was one of the things that I, I found odd, really odd in, in, in this uh in this movie well i guess like my similar to with dress to kill it's like do you have any doubt what the twist is going to be like 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 from the first 10 minutes of the movie it's like you you know where it's all leading yeah it's just weird after raising cane he gets into carlito's way and this is kind of like a very light underwhelming spiritual sequel to scarface where once again you have al pacino pretending to be a hispanic man and you have Sean Penn being like a really Jewy, like a stereotypical Jew lawyer. <laughs> He's great, and then he just go, he goes crazy, like in the middle of the movie, and just kills one of the most important bosses. It, it, it like has no regard for the effects of that. This attorney, um, it's 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 a it's a fun movie, I guess, I, but it's kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> I could see people liking it, like like if. I can see why people like this movie just like going into it. I feel like maybe going into it with the expectation of like enjoying a Brian De Palma film. There's not a lot of things. A lot of his trademarks aren't there uh, for me. Mm -hmm. It feels like, like a, like a movie that dumb people would find smart. Uh, That's my impression of it. Uh, I'm Um, looking at, I'm looking at the reviews and it's exactly, (laughs) exactly what you just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How about the fact that there's a prequel with P. Diddy or somebody like that? They bought the rights in the early aughts and were like Carlito's Way, the beginning. So it's, or some really <laughs> shitty title like that. Right, that went to right. Write the video. It's Rise to Power. 
Carlito's rise way to rise power. to power. Rise to they get like Mario Van Peebles to do yeah, that Jay movie. Her- <laughs> Jay Hernandez and Luis Guzman. And oh, P. Diddy, yeah. yeah. He'll do anything. That sounds, yeah, like, a, that sounds like a PS2 game. <laughs> um, who who is in? Oh wow, Jay Hernandez did do that. That's unfortunate. I mean, he's he's got a modicum of talent. Same with uh, Mario Van Peebles. But yeah, Sean Sean P. Diddy Puffy Combs bought the rights, <laughs> and they thought this was a good idea. To do, and it, it's like licensed by Universal and everything. Unbelievable. Do you think that they tried to get Scarface? Um. Ooh. I, my my prediction is they were probably thinking about remaking Scarface by that point. And, uh, I mean, it's entirely possible that they put out, like, an inquiry to see if that was even available to do, like, a prequel or a sequel or something. I know there was some idea to do... Wait, was there a video game or was that canceled? I remember seeing, uh, like, footage... No, no, it, it came out. It came it was out. A, it was like GTA. Yeah, it was called Scarface, The World Is Yours. It was actually pretty sick. It was kind of like... I don't know. I, it was it was like Vice City, um, but you you could do like more stuff if I remember. Like they had some interesting mechanics. I only played it like I remember renting it from fucking Blockbuster, Game Crazy, or something. One of those mob games got canceled. I know there was talk for a Godfather video game. I think that might have came out, yeah. and Taxi Driver. I think was yeah. being slated for that as well, which would have been. I don't even know how that could possibly work. You're just saving how could that possibly be a game? Mm. so following carlito's way he does mission impossible and that brings him back to the mainstream i think that's really a big commercial success for him he winds up becoming a relevant director again gets some freedom within these studios to do bigger projects and it winds up leading to the one-two punch combo of Snake Eyes in 1998 and then Mission to Mars in 2000. Now, Snake Eyes is, as I was saying before, it's an enjoyable film strictly because you have Brian De Palma manning the camera and you have Nicolas Cage as the lead there. Otherwise, I think it would be entirely forgettable. But it's not. It's a, it's a fun movie to watch and it feels very late 90s. It feels very of the yeah. time. It, because uh, Gary Sinise is very one tone too. He doesn't really do much in the movie. He he pretty much keeps. He's the always same. the mildly angry guy. Yes. Yeah, even when he's murdering people in cold blood, he's still like his expression doesn't change, and he doesn't really do much to. Well, no, he's con- professional. You know, he's in, an expert. He's got to keep it clean and classy. In contrast with uh, Nicolas Cage, who's just completely over the top and just in- amazing. I I I I started to think after watching it. Uh, other performances by him that are so over the top and enjoyable like that. And uh, I don't know what rate raising Arizona, maybe something like that where, you know, it's not annoying or it doesn't take you out of the movie when he goes that like that. But mm. I, I believe them in his role of like this uh, sleazy New Jersey uh, detective. Uh, and yeah, he, the, the camera, um, he does a lot of really interesting things with the rooms that the, those scenes where, uh, Panning where he puts the camera rooms. Yeah. On, yeah. That, that was very impressive. And just the POV and, and the split screen that he uses at times, uh, is really interesting visually, even though, you know, the story, again, there's not really, it's like a, a whodunit 
mystery that is pretty much resolved within the first hour, I think. Right. I was, I was going to say for half of it, it's a whodunit. Yeah. And it becomes obvious, I think, within the first like 20, 30 minutes, who's actually behind mm. uh, the killing and what, what's been going on. And instead of dragging that out, they just like get to it and they make it more a piece of Nicolas Cage having to deal with the fact that his good friend is responsible mm. for this and having to navigate that. And it completely works to the film's benefit that they go in that direction. Brian yeah. De pa- I mean, what we're learning is Brian De Palma's strength is not covering up who the killer is in these films. <laughs> With this and Dress to Kill and Raising... I mean... Right. He's, he's not very subtle in that regard. Um, what did you make of Snake Eyes, Nick? I think Snake Eyes is pretty underrated, man. Like, I know that, like, critics were pretty hard on it when it came out and i don't i know that it's got a rotten would you know what its rotten tomato score is um metacritic has not good metacritic has 52 uh i agree with 52 i i mean i just i feel like is it bad oh my am i it's 41 yes connection 41 percent. 41 okay Connection. I'm sorry, guys. My connection might be getting bad. You might have to edit around this. Uh, no worries. Um, we've only got one real film left to cover, anyway. And oh well, no. The well, the only thing I was going to say was I think that dress or um, Snake Eyes is interesting because I do think it's De Palma doing De Palma, but just like by the late '90s, uh, his flavor of filmmaking had fallen way out of step with what audiences wanted to see. Definitely. I think, and, and I think that that's like a big, like when you want to talk about the decline of De Palma, I feel like that's a, a big component. Yeah, he, I mean, his style, I don't think works for that time period and also the aughts. And he winds up changing things uh, too much, I, I, I would say, as he proceeds forward. And you just see a decline in projects as well. He gets worse and worse titles to helm and uh it really comes to a direct and abrupt halt with this 2000 film mission to mars starring tim robbins and gary sinise who works with gary sinise again don Cheadle, jerry o'connell really an all-star cast for this film and it came out had the misfortune (laughs) of coming out the same year as red planet with val kilmer two mars movies on Walmart shelves within the same year, within the same period of time. <laughs> but I have not seen Red Planet. I have seen Mission to Mars. I watched this only two days ago. And it was mind-blowing. This was not a movie I was ever <laughs> anticipating in any regard, uh, especially not to have come from Brian De Palma. And um, I was wowed by it. I'm, gl- I'm glad you you put this in the lineup, Nick. Because I wouldn't have ever seen it otherwise, and here we are. So. Well, it's I feel like D- Mission to Mars is the definitive end of like Brian De Palma as a competent filmmaker. Absolutely, I, f- I feel like it's the nail in the coffin. It's just like no. What I was really struck by on the rewatch is like it's like fucking two hours long, and truly not that much happens in it. Like it, it takes him a long time to cover a relatively small amount of ground. Yes. And like, the, I guess like you can see where he thought it would be interesting to have all, okay, action scenes in zero gravity. They would actually play out very slowly. Like, so we're actually going to film it. Like there's going to be very little music except for like a weird Dracula organ in that one part where the hull is breached. Um, 
but it as interesting as that idea is it just makes it like there's no urgency to any of it as you as you could probably predict when you're fucking planning you know those kind of scenes out um it just like does not work on any level it's fucking incredible yeah i said this to you already but it just seemed like every creative decision made in this movie was a poor decision it was a bad choice across the board um (laughs) With the exception of maybe the casting, but Tim Robbins is not a charismatic lead. Neither is Gary Sinise. Gary Sinise works much better as a supporting character. And we're surprised 40 minutes in when they abruptly kill off Tim Robbins. And actually, most of the cast dies in like the first 30 minutes. And then they kill off Tim Robbins for just like seemingly no reason. And uh, it it just gets worse from there. Yeah, dude, I was, what I was realizing when I was rewatching this movie is like, oh, fuck, Don Cheadle is a bad actor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's, not, he's really, really bad. This is his worst movie by far. And, I mean, his, his, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more. Hans, you had I, something to say. Yeah, I, I can appreciate when directors take time to introduce the characters and show them so that you know, you get to know them and you care for them for whatever's going to happen at the end of the movie. But at least make the characters a little bit interesting. I feel like every, we spend so much time with them, getting to know them, but none of them have anything interesting to say. They, even though they're astronauts, everything they do is fucking boring. Yes. And their interactions <laughs> are just very nothing. Like, you you can compare that to, uh, let's say, something like, like Alien, where you also have a... a a big group of uh, characters in space, but they all have their own personality and they're all different. In here, it, it felt like the face changed, but it was just the same character and they didn't really say anything interesting or do anything interesting for you to care about seeing them interact with each other for three quarters of the movie. So then when they die, you're just like, all right, like I don't I care don't because who are, who are these people that just got dismembered by this tornado in Mars? I don't give a shit. You know, like, I, I don't care. Like, I felt nothing. Uh, but I, I guess the effort of getting to know them, I appreciate because not every movie takes that time. But at the same time, it's like, if you're going to do that, make them do something or make them interesting enough for me to give a shit. Because, yes, because end, it's a waste of time otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. I knew something was up in the first seconds of this movie when the music starts playing and it's almost like a TV version of like Randy Newman's music. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I, I know that Disney did this movie, but it's, well, it's when they're, the Palma. When it's, they're together and kind of, it kind of feel like you're watching that, um, grown ups movie where they're right. kind of joking. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's we like start they're joking with, around, but nothing is funny and mm-hmm. nothing is an actual joke. Yeah. Right. They, we well, open to the it, cookout and it's just, atrocious it's a oneer, and it's a completely pointless one it's it is it is all one take right am i i i think so because i yeah and and it's and again it's like it's there's no reason for it to be one take and it's really it's fucking stupid it feels it feels dragged out it doesn't add anything and i feel like that's a lot of like this is where like it's funny there are like de palma shots in this movie i think there's even a split diopter shot oh yeah um but none of it stands out in the way that his style usually does. Well, it's really weird. It, the thing that I noticed here, especially with the split diopter, which is like his signature shot, is he cleaned it up a little too much. I think he had access. I mean, clearly, 
we learn by the end of this movie he had too much access to the computers and to digital effects. And uh, typically when, when you're using the split diopter, it's, it's a messy shot where you have an out-of-focus uh, ridge, essentially, uh, that mm. separates the two in-focus shots. And that's always been the case throughout his work. If you look at Blowout, if you look at uh, Body Double, any of these films, you will see that, that streak that is out-of-focus here. And one shot in particular comes to mind where... Gary Sinise is like watching a videotape in space and Gary Sinise's look in this movie. Why does he look like Garth Brooks's persona? You know, <laughs> did you guys notice that? He looks like Chris Gaines. He's got like, he's got the hair that's like flopped. In the front. And he is, he is wearing eyeliner in this movie. I got a good like HD so. version. You can see the eyeliner and he's like trying to be like the happy, nice smiley guy, which doesn't work for Gary Sinise no. at all. And, um, there's a shot of him and he's talking to Tim Robbins before he's killed off. And it's just his smiling face watching, <laughs> watching some video. And Tim Robbins is also in focus and it's completely clean up the middle. It looks like, did, did you have any depth of focus at all for this shot? Um, so it, it's just poorly done across the board. And the acting is terrible. We get to talk about Don Cheadle and how uh, the Martian essentially rips this movie off. You know, he oh, yeah. he is the lone survivor from that tornado, which unveils a giant alien face structure, you know, because they're very vain creatures. They like to have, you know, Egyptian pyramid style, uh, uh, you know, whatever the fuck in the shape of their faces. Do they ever explain that tornado? It's no. just the entity, right? It's, just- it's no, I thought it was the defense system because they put in the uh, fucking the code wrong. They didn't realize they were supposed to put in the last two chromosomes, which I guess like, yeah, I think that, I think that's what Gary Sinise surmised somehow when they were, I might be wrong. I think you paid way too much attention to this movie. Yeah. That, I was about to say, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> These are details that nobody, that Brian De Palma doesn't even know currently. Um, so Don Cheadle is the lone survivor of that tornado. And uh, I guess he's in space for a while because, you know, he's got like a current Donald Glover style look to him when yeah. he shows back up on screen. Very, this is America. <laughs> and um, he tries to kill Gary. And it's like, it's a horror movie kind of where he's like in the background. They do the insidious thing where they show the Darth Maul style demon just briefly hanging out behind Patrick Wilson. Yeah. You know, they, they do that shot. And then um, he just decides, oh, that's Gary Sinise. I can't kill well, Gary Sinise. He's my friend. They have well, a, very, be- a very Batman versus Superman marathon moment where where it's like he's about to kill him. And he's like, no, I know your wife. This is your wife's name, remember? Hey, you're this guy. And then he just remembers no, him out of nowhere. Uh, Hans, that was Hans, you're referring to a much, much better scene. Yeah. Yes. In a, okay. in a masterful <laughs> film. He's just looking Please. to take it down a peg wherever he can. He wants to normalize this anti-Zack Snyder sentiment that doesn't exist as much anymore. We're just gonna have to deal with it, Hans. But uh with the Don Cheadle scene, I thought that it's weird because he has that line where he says, you're not here, you're not here. And then Gary Sinise proves that he's Gary Sinise by like, you know, letting, he's like, I know your wife's name. I know when you're, all these details. And I was like, but they never follow up on that. I'm like, okay, so is the thing like creating illusions? Like, 
Has Don Cheadle been visited by fucking hallucinations? Never followed up on it all. Well, and he went from completely insane to, oh, I'm fine now. Yeah, he After he that. heard that. Yeah, completely. And then we have the conclusion of the film, which is... Oh, my God. It's really something. It was really Brian De Palma's 2001 moment with Gary Sinise and the aliens. You mean the... Oh. The, te- the TED Talk presentation that the alien gave to the humans? <laughs> um, yeah. Dude, you were talking about Gary Sinise's face. How the, the, one of the, it's one of the last shots when he's completely submerged in the water. Mm-hmm. And it's that shot of his face looking. In, it's completely ghoulish. It's absolutely terrifying. His wet face <laughs> with fucking like water droplets sticking to his eyelashes. Just like smiling in a way that... that I think it's probably the scariest image in the movie. Yes, he, he smiles way too much in this movie in general. He just he, he should have kept to his scowl. He was the wrong person. They should have switched the roles, really, between him and Tim Robbins. That alien, that alien that, I mean, they didn't even get interesting with the design. It's the stereotypical oval, uh, you know, yeah. wide-eyed alien look, but with like a right. bit of an earthworm gym shape to the, the head, you know? <laughs> What? What? I mean, that wasn't even good special effects for 2000. No, this movie looks for having a, I think it had like a $100 million budget. It is such an expensive piece of shit. It doesn't even look particularly good. No, no. I mean, some of the space shots looked decent. Uh, It was still very easy to make out that it was green screen because it looks like they're all just standing with a space background. Like there's not even like a... (laughs) A movement there where they're floating. Also, their faces look weird inside of the, of the suits too. Yes, you know, think I think it, it wasn't it wasn't them. I don't think because it, it didn't look like their faces. It looked like a like a projection of their face inside of the masks. Now I don't know if they were actually you know inside of the suits or not, but that was a little bit odd too. Just visually, holy shit, a hundred and yeah. They probably realized that it it doesn't lead to very good acting if they're inside the suit because they're not going to have much flexibility or an ability to emote as much. And also probably the audio would be terrible. Um, Every, every single uh, special effect in this movie is just, I mean, it's not even that it's dated because you can look at other films that came out around this time. You can look at AI, you know, the Spielberg uh, Kubrick produced film. And that looks still pretty decent today. And especially like the aliens at least have more of an interesting design to them. There was just a void of creativity. I think when it came to the science fiction aspects of this movie, I'm just yeah, kind of, it's, I'm kind of wondering why he made this movie because it's nothing like anything else he's done before. And it really came out of nowhere. Uh, mm-hmm. you well, know, he, going... he was a gun for hire on this one. Okay. Odd choice too. Then I, I yeah. don't think I would pick him as a sci-fi director ever, or it would be my you know top ten people that I would pick to do something like this. Just looking at his body of work previously, right? I think it had. I know that it likely had something to do with Mission Impossible being as much of a success because that was not necessarily in his wheelhouse either. That's like a pure straight-up action film, and maybe that's where. They had the idea of hiring him for this. He's a name. He's somebody who can make an exciting movie. 
And this is clearly a very boring movie. The script was probably boring. You know, they didn't have high hopes for this. And they just thought, all right, well, if we pour a bunch of money into this and put an auteur at the helm, maybe we'll wind up with something. And I mean, Tim Robbins and Gary Sinise were pretty big stars at the time. Jerry O'Connell was up and coming. I, everything went wrong. though. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's really a piece of shit. Um, yeah, the Mission Impossible thing is interesting because he he, he even t- kind of plays those same notes in the beginning where it's like he kills off the team that you think you're going to spend right. the movie with. Yeah, so I think it, I think you had it right on the nose where this is the definitive end of Brian De Palma as we know him as a as a great director. Anyway, everything that follows is either forgettable. Or uh, something that should be forgotten. I think the the last real movie that had any kind of, uh, not even esteem, but just attention that was paid to it was The Black Dahlia in 2007 or 2008, which had Aaron Eckhart and I think Scarlett Johansson might have been in that movie. And it got, a, yeah, it got a decent theatrical run and maybe it got like middling reviews, but it still was just not up to snuff. I was about to mention that you, movie, but then I tried to remember something from it, and I can't. There's nothing about it that I can remember other than, what, didn't Ben Affleck? No, who played no, no, Superman? No, no. Yeah, Ben Affleck played Superman. No, that's, that's, that, a different movie. No, that's a different movie. That's a different movie. Is that Hollywoodland? Yes. Yeah. See, that's how, <laughs> that's how much I remember this piece of shit. Yeah, I don't, The only I don't, thing I remember about Black Dahlia is I know that William Finley is in it as a ghost. It's it like like he like it's I think it's one of the first times Brian De Palma collaborated with him again since fucking Phantom. Maybe he was in another movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only thing that I remember from Black Dahlia. It's probably his last remotely watchable film. And again, when I say watchable, I include Mission to Mars in that category because if you have seen Domino, that's not a watchable movie. That's not a real film. <laughs> I mean, he. Really? It's I heard people I had people recommend that movie to me. N- no. No, I know that uh, you know, <laughs> anybody who listens to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, I think he was waxing poetic about that film. It's a piece of shit. It's awful. I mean, <laughs> e- every creative choice made in that film is not even like bad interesting like it is in Mission to Mars. It's just like I had to do this. They they held me at gunpoint. I had to finish this movie. <laughs> um <laughs> It makes me wonder if he would have been better off as one of these directors. Like you see this with Francis Ford Coppola and Abel Ferrara. They go off to Europe and just make movies that nobody really sees or pays attention to anymore. And they keep their legacy intact. Um, although, I, you know, I, I don't know if these later films really impair De Palma's legacy as a great filmmaker uh, so much. Uh, in retrospect, I still think he's one of the all-time American greats, but uh, it's it's hard to ignore everything that comes after Mission to Mars. Yeah, most of it's just fucking... Now, I, he did some movie about lesbians that I think I could... Right. Passion. Uh, that had Rachel McAdams in it, right? Yeah, and the, yeah, I haven't um, seen it. I haven't seen it. Numi, Numi Rapace, Rapace, however you say her name, mm-hmm. the girl from uh, Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, her career disappeared. She she was in Prometheus and then gone. Goodbye. So long. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny how that happens with like all these 
really big stars from 2013. Like another one is Dane DeHane. Nobody knows what happened to Dane DeHane. Probably Harry. Oh yeah, dude. Spider Man. No, he was in uh, fucking. He was in Valerian. Right, and that oh, was a terrible job. She disappeared too. Uh, what, what's her name? Cara Delevingne. She was the bad guy in Suicide yeah. Squad. All it takes really is one bad movie, and then you're gone. You you just disappear. I mean, uh, yeah, you you would reference Ben Affleck in Hollywoodland. I think that was like on his way coming back to stardom back in the aughts after doing Gigli and then Jersey Girl. I just came off a Kevin Smith marathon. I, I watched all of his Ooh, films oh. out of the blue. Um, so sorry, dude. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, how many of how many of those hold up? Uh, what do you mean by hold up, though? You know? Uh, are, are the, <laughs> mm, yeah. Mm. It, I mean, look, it, you, it's, and, it, it's, not, it's not very fair because he's such a product of the 90s. So everything in there, the humor, the pop culture references are all of that time. And if you pull it, if you extract that and try to plop it into today, it just obviously it, it's bad. If you showed that to a 20-year-old, they would, they would despise it. But I can put myself in the mentality of like where I was in 1996 or whatever and still find enjoyment in some of those things. But, um, I mean, if you want to get a vibe of that, just watch Jay and Silent Bob reboot because he does the same exact thing but today. And it's Ugh. one of the worst atrocities in, in filmmaking. So you're I mean, saying you're not excited, excited for Clerks 3? I'll I'll watch Clerks three. I'm up for Clerks three. I don't I don't mind the Clerks series. I'm up for that, yeah. and I'm up for his his Jaws parody, Moose Jaws, that he's trying to do with Johnny Depp. Oh yeah, I haven't kept up with. I saw uh, Tusk. I didn't. I tried to watch Yoga Hosers. Mm. Couldn't do it. Mm. Yoga Hosers. Wow, that is uh, that's that's also an abomination. That's that's really bad. Tusk I thought was a fun horror movie. But yoga hosers, he gets way too self-indulgent. My God. Um, anyhow, uh, is there anything left to say about Brian De Palma? Um, do you think he has one one more good film left in him? Do you think he can do a comeback like Spike Lee did with Black Klansman? Even though you rewatch that movie now, it's like, ah, maybe this movie wasn't so good. But it's still a whole lot better than Chirac or... Uh, uh, the sweet yeah. blood of Jesus or any of those awful movies. No. Cause I, I think that, I think that like what I said before, I think that Brian De Palma is, I mean, I guess he has the ability to make a film that doesn't have a lot of his trademarks in it. If you look like Kalita's way, but, but I'm not interested in that. Um, and I think that for Brian De Palma to make a Brian De Palma ass movie, he's, he's just out of step with what a, a lot of, well, I don't know actually. Cause maybe if it was like an A24 thing or something, cause I, I, I also thought that Paul Schrader was done making good yeah. movies. Paul, and then uh, Paul Schrader had definitely fallen off for a while. Uh, Canyons was obviously a mess. I mean, the best thing to happen with that movie was the, the piece that came out. That was like a good lengthy read. They could publish that as like a paperback. And it would be a bestseller. Just the, all the behind the scenes information about, uh, how that production was doomed from the beginning and his weird relationship with Lindsay Lohan. Or it, it, it kind of sounded like he had fallen in love with her on the set and he was like always trying to, I, I don't know, like seduce her into coming, coming out of her room and act. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was very, uh, very, very fun read, that, that piece. Um, and I, I can't there recall a, what else he put out around that time. 
There's a, a movie that was announced recently uh, that the Palma is working on, uh, and it says it's a horror film set in Hollywood featuring a predatory movie mogul. So right, I guess he's making right. a yes, he's doing the Weinstein. Weinstein. Yes, yeah. when when Me Too started up, he came out and said, "I have this new idea for a film," <laughs> and that's what it was. He has that, and he has another movie that he's working on, but um, not very hopeful. Yeah, I think that he just. I mean, I think that his legacy has clearly been cemented. I think it exists in the time that it exists. And he's a great reference point, I think, for, for newer filmmakers. But I think that the man himself is, I, I don't think he's going to get another one. I think he's kind of lost his touch in a pretty permanent way. Do you think that the documentary De Palma that Noah Baumbach did on him is responsible for bringing him back to esteem? Did a lot of people see that? I think it was pretty popular. I think... I I believe I could have this wrong. I think A24 released it and it was pretty successful when it came out and it started a conversation about his filmography and his work that I don't think was happening before then. Hmm. I I thought the documentary was okay. I wish that they'd spent more. It felt like they kind of really ran through all of his movies. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess it, I, I, if it reignited that conversation, I wasn't aware of it. I did, I wasn't even really aware the conversation around him had been reignited. Yeah. It seems like every so often these more, uh, vintage filmmakers are given their due, uh, by like generate, like, like a good generation or two after whichever one he fell out of step with and, and who have dismissed him. Like not to go back to Vincent Gallo, but I'm starting to see that that's <laughs> that's been the case with a lot of like young guys in their 20s recently revisiting those films, which uh, were previously brushed off as very self indulgent and um, not worth anybody's time. That it was just masturbatory, uh, which is a ludicrous assertion to me. <laughs> but I digress. Um, Hans, what do you what do you think the future has in store for Brian De Palma? I hope he dies soon so that he stops <laughs> staining his legacy. <laughs> just just quit. Just it's done. Just, just quit. That's it. Just quit. You know, one of die. the things that I was yeah. one of the things that I was disappointed about um in uh Mission of Mars or I guess another thing that I was disappointed about Mission of Mars is that I thought I was gonna watch Ghosts of Mars. So I was hyped. Oh. I was I was hyped because I was like, I know this is a piece of shit, but at least, you know, I'm gonna be entertained. And uh, it oh. wasn't that at all. I watched <laughs> Escape to LA, Escape from LA recently, John Carpenter's late nineties work. Mm-hmm. He's another one of these guys. It just seems like they all come to it, they hit a brick wall at some point, and everything is awful. I mean, I I know our boy Jake really loves uh Escape, escape from LA, but ooh, I couldn't. I could hardly sit through it. It was as bad. It was almost as bad as Mission to Mars. I, dude, this is. I, it's. I feel this way about Carpenter and De Palma specifically. I, I'm trying to figure out why their visual style, why it's suddenly in the '90s, it stopped translating. I'm like, is it? Was it the new equipment? Yes. Like, like, like. Yeah. I think. Right? I yeah. think it was that. Absolutely. That is definitely the case with. Uh, Escape from L.A., where you see that he starts using the you know chroma key green screen. You see like little pixels hanging out around people's heads, like it wasn't done cleanly enough. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I was watching like behind the scenes for Escape from New York, and they couldn't even afford the visual effects to do outlines of buildings for that movie. So what they did was they constructed a little model, a 
of a building. Oh, yeah. And then they um, outlined it with like a light or something and then inverted that. And that's how they did a lot of the the cool like map sequences and, and all that. Right. And then it all goes out the window circa 1996, 1997, where, you know, the technology is very easy to come by. It's a lot cheaper. And they're so impressed by it. It's kind of like Scorsese with The Irishman, which I still think is a very good movie, to be clear. But the, you know, the technology there is going to be more impressive to a 75-year-old man, or I guess during this time, De Palma's probably like in his late 50s, early 60s. Um, and it's not going to be for the audience of that film, which is probably going to be a median age of 35 or younger. Right. Well, I, I also think that, uh, and this is something that I mentioned all the time whenever we talk about older movies that that feeling of dirtiness that film has you can't replicate it with hd cameras so you lose a lot of what the look of those movies is when you try to make them now just because it's much cheaper to just you know put a, a fucking tape in or, well now even memory cards so it's not that memory feeling cards. of just You're dirty yourself by calling them memory cards dirty <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> Just the greedy and dirtiness uh, that that happens a lot with. Uh, I feel like the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like the the remakes that they've made, are lacking that a lot, which the first and second one have, which is that feeling of dirtiness and just like greediness that the film has that you can't really replicate now. Uh, and for someone like the Palma, who depends a lot on the visuals and the way that those movies looked, translating it to an HD, you know, uh, it just doesn't. I don't know. It, it it doesn't feel the same. It feels very sanitized. It feels very clean. And it doesn't hit as hard as the old ones used to do with, with that look. Are you aware of the fact? Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Nick. I was going to say, yeah, there's just something about it, even just like comparing Sisters to uh, Snake Eyes. Like you, like you see, you can, Sisters is fucking grainy. It looks like it was like a 35 million transfer. Just to the cleaner, something about that. His pulpy style just looks better in that format than yep. Snake Eyes, where like admittedly some of that movie feels a little cartoonier. I th- and I think it's because of like either the lenses or the film stock or, or just just the the improved image quality in general. Something about it just doesn't gel for me. I think it has to do with probably the processing of that film stock is my guess because I think it's very easy to emulate the actual film texture, and a lot of filmmakers still do that. And I mean, it's rare that you ever see a movie shot with HD cameras that doesn't have some kind of uh, film texture to it that's artificially added in post. Uh, But you're right. I mean, there's just something about the look that cannot be emulated and it does change the context of the film as a result. Um, I was going to say before, because you were talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, are you aware of the fact that Toby Hooper's son did a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2? back in the nineties, strictly with VHS cameras. That's like, I guess it's done. I guess it's completed. It has Bill Mosley's chop top in it and it's never been released. Ooh, I want to see that. Yeah. I'm interested. There's a, there's a trailer online. I'm, I'm kind of uh, into like rare and forgotten media like that or lost films. And so I was doing some reading about this movie recently and, um, we're probably not missing much, but it would it would still be probably better than the more recent entries in terms of entertainment. Anyway, it it looks it looks really bad. It looks really terrible. Shooting anything with like real legit video cameras is always a bad move. But, <laughs> um, could be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, but then you have shit like fucking Leatherface, 
where they just which one uh the, the the last one i think it was called leatherface where they have a they do like a, a switch there like a uh, a very uh, Shyamalan um, reveal at the end where you think that one of the kids is going to be um, Leatherface because he's big, fat, and retarded. But then it's like, oh, no, it's not this character. It's the one that would speak and was the smartest one. He becomes Leatherface, which makes absolutely oh. no sense. And oh, yeah, yeah, it's hmm. a piece of shit. It's really bad. Uh, and it suffers from mystery. that, too. It suffers from that, too, where they're trying to make it seem dirty because it's in Texas and, you know, they're all dirty. And, and, and But it doesn't have the feel of the original one. Uh, it felt still, even though they're trying to make it dirty, it feels very sanitized and very HD, which that movie shouldn't be, I guess. Yeah, that's what people wanted with Joker, right? Like, he, he's not the Joker, but he inspires the Joker. That's, that was right. a big right. fanboy wish yeah. at the end of that Jesus. movie. Ugh. Big fat and retarded Leatherface. They should get Stavros Halkius <laughs> to play Leatherface for the next one. <laughs> Greek Leatherface. <laughs> oh boy! All right, I think I think we've said just about everything we can possibly say about uh, the Palmas resume, unless we all go watch Wise Guys and then pick up a full episode on Wise Guys with Joe Piscopo. Hmm. You think you can feel an what? hour? <laughs> an hour talking about... We should just get Joe Piscopo on the show for that. Why not? I bet you... I guarantee you we oh, could. he'd fucking do it. He would oh, jump at the yeah. opportunity, too. What is... Does he have a... He have you ever seen... <laughs> he put out a comedy special. I'm sorry. Oh, I know yeah. that we, we got to wrap this oh, up. Oh, my God. Yeah. He That's put out a special. comedy special on fucking Showtime. Was it comedy, yes. though? I think there was some spoken it's word not. in there. There was some, like... There was some... Dude, he's doing, like, a Sinatra thing. Yeah. Yes. It's so fucking bad. It's so fucking bad. Oh. He's a he's talentless. He's somebody who's like truly talentless. Got onto SNL, you know, by pure fluke, and has somehow been milking a non-act. Or I guess he works Vegas. You know, like yeah. I mean, look, God bless. I would love. I would love to have a career as as uh, as successful as Joe Piscopo's. <laughs> <laughs> No, he's not. He's not doing. He's probably doing like Bronson, Missouri, not yeah, Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's with uh, what is his name? Yakov Smirnov Theater. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's kind of like the original Arsenio Hall. He's somebody who was considered great simply due to association because he worked decently with Eddie Murphy during SNL's rockiest period. And that got him like Johnny Dangerously. That got him Wise Guy. He was in a bunch of movies. And then he made the mistake of leaving SNL the same time as Eddie Murphy. He's like, you know what? If Eddie Murphy's not going to be here, then I'm out as well. And we saw how that went. God. That was, yep. you know, he should have been the Keenan Thompson of the 80s. He should have fucking hung in there for 30 years. Could you imagine him on the show right now? He would be at his prime. <laughs> he would be the best if he had just waited. No? Anyway. <laughs> Oh, that special um, is great. We should do an episode on that special. <laughs> that <laughs> fucking comedy special is so not good. <laughs> yeah. I would love that. I would love nothing more if we could just do a play-by-play and then bring him on in the last 10 minutes and act like we didn't criticize the, the special <laughs> for 50 minutes. This is yes. what comedy should be now. <laughs> anyway, uh, Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was fun. Yeah, man, this is a blast. Thanks for having me. And I, I think we did a very good job of getting through 
I mean, we, we had initially set out to do like some of the major films, but I think we really covered just about all of it. Uh, which, you know, we, we did a George Romero retrospective a while back and that was kind of like all over the place. We didn't even get into the later part of his career, but I feel like this is, this is pretty complete as far as talking about Brian De Palma goes. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad it was a good one, man. Yeah. This was, this was fucking cool. All right. Uh, that has been the show for this week. Uh, do you want to plug your podcast? You're on the hard times network. Yeah. Uh, so I have a podcast with, um, fellow comedian, Brendan Crick. It's called coward hour. Uh, we put it out. We're going to actually go, I'm going to go record right after I get off the phone with you guys. Um, and it'll be out tomorrow, but we usually put it out every Friday and, uh, yeah, we're on the hard times. It's fun. It's not really about anything. It's just us mm-hmm. talking, you know, uh, Brendan and I now have something in common in that we both got, uh, features on red bar as of recent. <laughs> I saw that he did a good impression of you. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was not expecting uh, to have an impersonation done of me. I think that might be the only time he's done an impersonation of someone, and it wasn't in an inherently negative manner. So that's that's nice. Made me feel a little, good, kid. A little good about myself. Uh, all right. Thanks for listening.